Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Alexandria Country Day School podcast. In this second podcast series, we're focusing on how a personalized approach influences the educational and social-emotional development of students. In our last episode, we discussed the difference between personalization and individualization and made a general case for how a personalized approach improves the educational experience for students. Today, we want to look a little bit more specifically at how this personalization enhances the learning experience in our classrooms at Alexandria Country Day School. We have with us once again our head of lower school, Jennifer Street, and our head of middle school, Ryan Woods, and we're joined as well today by Sarah Culberson, third grade teacher. Hi, Sarah. Hi, everybody. And Amy Newhouse, middle school social studies teacher. Hello, Amy. Hello. Before we get into specifics about how personalization plays out in the classrooms, I wanted to talk about how the curricula and instructional approaches we employ lend themselves well to personalization. So, Ryan or Jen, can you each speak to the main curricular programs we use and how they're particularly well-tuned to a personalized approach? Sure, I'd be happy to start by just sharing a little bit about the instructional practices that really cut across all of, uh, all of our curriculum here at ACDS. Um, and, you know, the ideas that I'm sharing here is basically what I see whenever I walk into a classroom um, here at ACDS. So first, I think one thing that's really key to us, no matter what we're teaching, is that we have really short chunks of direct instruction. So a general rule for us is that direct instruction, it lasts anywhere from 7 to 12 minutes. There are those rare occasions when we do need to do a little bit more in the middle school. Um, but for the most part, teachers are only in front of the kids giving direct instructions for those short blocks. Uh, that leaves us lots of time for the remainder of each period to do a lot of guided and independent practice. We really want to see students doing work. We want them engaged in work in our classrooms. We don't want to send it home. We really feel like we get to know our students when we watch them work, not just when we see their products. Um, so lots of the class period, or most of the class period, is the students engaging in work, and the teacher is walking around the room, um, and they are kneeling down beside students, helping them when they need to, um, or just observing them. And then that even carries over into our summative assessments. Um, I know that in a lot of schools, when we have students working on projects or maybe they're working on a paper in language arts class, that work is sent home. Um, we really believe that, again, we want that work to take place here. Um, although they're getting a grade on it, um, we still want to learn from them. We want to collect more data so we're watching them even do that work so that we know um, where there might be gaps or what they really excel at. Um, and then finally, I would say that in our classrooms, our teachers are really making sure that they're paying attention to the habits, the learning habits of students, um, so that we can address those, and then also certainly the skills and content that they're taking away. Um, we don't want to just be, again, looking at the products and saying, wow, they've really mastered these math facts without paying attention to how they're going about doing that math work, because we can learn a lot from that as well. I imagine, you know, with those kinds of approaches, finding certain, we've had to choose curricular programs that really lend themselves well to that. Uh, Jen, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of those examples. Sure. I, you know, the first that comes to mind is our use of math and focus. So with math and focus, it really lends itself to that idea of personalization and that it's important that we know our students. We have a school culture here that really values knowing each child as an individual and then being responsive to that in how we approach our teaching. So with math and focus, we begin each lesson with an anchor task. We present students with a concept from the moment they start that day and we watch what they do with that, how they approach new problems and new concepts, um, what strategies they're putting into place. And then we're taking that information during that opening anchor task and using that in our guided practice and teaching. During guided practice, there's a real focus on how students are attempting and solving um, problems to challenge themselves. 
and we look at how students want to make their thinking visible. So we're looking at what each student is bringing to the table in their problem-solving strategies. Once we see what they're kind of thinking and doing within these concepts, that's where we can really step in and challenge them at the level that's best for them. So it's in both of those examples, it sounds like you have a picture of teachers working really closely in one-on-one -on -one situations, and these programs allow for that kind of engagement, which lets you see not only how they're approaching a problem, but even the emotional state they bring to that effort. Um, uh, Sarah, Amy, I'm wondering how, how you see these things play out in the classroom as teachers as you're working with kids when you get that combination of not only knowing you know, what their learning profile is, but day-to-day -day seeing them actually engage in the work that you're asking them to do. Yeah, I think in the lower school classrooms, um, we do really empower that sense of community um, and the ability for each student to feel like they can be problem solving and taking risks. And so within that, we are not only watching, just like Ryan said, we're not looking for the product, but we're watching the process and their thinking. Um, and so in, in a typical classroom in the lower school, it is very much small group and one-on-one -on -one work. Um, in our workshop approach with reading and writing workshop from Teachers College, there is that seven to 12 minute lesson where we are teaching that one specific task and then from there, I'm watching them practicing that task actually within that direct instruction. So I'm doing these little mini assessments on these kids, watching them um, problem solve and take these, these actions and these skills in their own work. From there, I then take these mental notes and I can work one-on-one. -on -one. I can work in small groups around things that I'm noticing, students either challenging, uh, being challenged with or something that they need to be pushed further with. So in a, in a third grade classroom, um, it really is constantly personalized for each individual child. And Amy, how do you see those ideas playing out even with the older students? So I would say in the middle school, and specifically for myself as a social studies teacher, um, one of the things that I appreciate the most is the ability to not just identify areas for growth, but also be able to um, identify their, their strengths and be able to help them to leverage those strengths as they learn new skills and, and material. I also enjoy the ability to um, identify their own um, interests and, and I can value those interests and, and those preferences as we go about um, tackling a task. So I have students that really enjoy geography and so I'm able to leverage that interest um, as we tackle something related to cultures or history. I have other students who really enjoy um, showing their understanding using artistic means and so they can, they can um, again, go about that task um, in an artistic or creative way. I think, um, you know, again, my ability to know them personally and, and pick up on what they want to do, it helps us to make a lot of our um, projects and our activities very student-driven. And it's, in hearing that, it's, uh, I think there's a real personal side to that as well. It's not just uh, that they are, one student's particularly good at, at writing or another student's particularly good at studying, but some of them bring interpersonal skills to the table or, or simply bring their emotional state to the table. And being able to know that and react to it, I think, is really vital in how we, 
how we teach the kids so we have enough flexibility in the program. Both all of you sort of talked about that flexibility, um, and maybe that's as we've thought about programs that we use. You know, maybe you can comment on the importance of the the flexibility you have as teachers to make adjustments in the flow. Partly because we're not as an independent school, not too overly constrained by external expectations, but we have the room to make adjustments. We can comment on that. Yeah, I think one of the wonderful things about the curricula that we use is the fact that um, we are starting fresh for the most part in every unit that we do. So math and focus, the units are changing every couple weeks, every week. And there are students who have strengths in certain areas in math and are challenged in other areas. But each unit, they can show that through our pre-assessment, through, um, through our observations that we are seeing during that launch of that unit so that we can change our expectations of each kid because one student might be really great at money but have a challenging time in multiplication. And we want to make sure that we are seeing that success and letting them see that success for other spots. I think the um, workshop um, for reading and writing does a similar thing where we are changing our um, our type of reading, either fiction, nonfiction, expository, narrative nonfiction, as well as our writing style, um, information writing versus a personal narrative. We're able to see the different aspects within a student, each unit, and allow them to see that writing isn't just one style, but they can find love for different reading, different writing approaches um, for every unit. Motivation seems to be a big part of this. Building relationship with a student is really key to knowing what's going to get them going. You mentioned that, Amy, too, about knowing that you could adjust maybe the subject matter and not only letting them choose, but you knowing uh, being able to put things in front of them is a big part of that. Have you had examples of, of that where that's you've seen that play out? So in my class, I absolutely have had those examples. I have students each year who come with their own background knowledge and, and experiences, and they share those with us um, as their teachers in, in informal um, settings, but also in class. And so I, I know going into each unit, um, oh, I, I know that you know this student really um, enjoyed their trip to this particular part of the world, and, and they are um, eager to share that with their peers. I can, I, again, leverage that information, leverage that knowledge to help the rest of the class make connections and make meaning of the, of the material. I can also decide what types of activities that I want to do on a particular unit based on um, the expressed interests of, of the students in the class. I think the fact that a lot of our activities are inquiry-based um, students have an opportunity to um, to explore lots of different resources and lots of different different um, pieces of information as they as they um, you know again try to gather um, uh, the skills and, and knowledge that they need and and they often go down different tangents and I have the flexibility to allow them to go down those tangents. We have some really wonderful conversations in class where again they're offering that background knowledge or that 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 unique interest that they have and it really helps to uh, um, expand the knowledge for everybody in the classroom. Yeah, that really, as you said, enriches everybody's experience. And I think in order to do that, we'll talk more in more depth about social-emotional learning in a, in a subsequent episode, but I think some of the practices that we have and the way we start our day really lend themselves to that because it gives you a sense of the, the temperature of the room, where kids are coming from. For instance, responsive classroom in the, in the lower school, uh, which becomes more advisory in the middle school, 
really sets that stage. And maybe Jen, you could talk a little bit about how responsive classroom helps create the environment where that personalized approach to instruction can play out. Sure, so each day when our students come in, our lower school students are starting their day with a morning meeting within their classroom where they're greeting one, each other, one another by name. They are kind of setting the tone, looking at the schedule for the day so that we can anticipate anything that they're looking forward to or maybe anxious about and just a chance to check in with one another and see how everyone's kind of approaching the tasks of the day. Whereas in upper school, then we're looking at um, circle of power and respect, so similar to that morning meeting, but a chance to check in with one another again so that we can really um, look ahead to the day and anticipate what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that um, certainly we do that every morning through um, CPR, circle of power and respect, and also, also the morning meetings in response to classroom, but I just think it's a general... I don't know, belief that all of our teachers have that we always want our kids to know that we support them. I think that's a big piece of this. Um, Sarah spoke about this a minute ago, this idea that she is constantly assessing where kids are. Not for a grade, but she just wants to know where they are in their learning process. By learning process, I mean like the social-emotional state of that learning process and also like the academic skills side of it. Um, that carries all the way through our program. You know, Even our eighth graders who are getting ready to go to high school, we, that's still the way we approach learning. Um, we have grade level team meetings every week and it's really amazing to me that when I ask about a student, so I just throw out a name, that the very specific examples teachers can give about where a student is, you know, you know Amy will share that, yeah, we've just started our essay that's due in a week, but when I just looked at their first draft, um, this is where they're really challenged, where they're struggling, and then I can throw another name out and she can give me that same level of feedback about a kid, and again, they haven't really submitted anything. There's nothing for a grade, but she can tell me precisely where a kid is. It's that way with, with every every subject and all of our teachers. And so I think that, that that goes back to what you were saying, Scott. I think it really serves to motivate our kids, right? They know that the teacher's on their side. You know, we're not trying to label them and say, you don't get this or you do. We're trying to say, where are you? Because I want to get you here. Mm. That's ultimately our goal for everyone. You mentioned something interesting about preparation for high school to eighth graders. And I think sometimes this kind of very um, engaged, relationship-based learning can be seen as... Uh, uh, of coddling is the right word, but soft and gentle, and it's not going to prepare them for the future. But I think we see in our students that it's about us creating an environment where they're able to establish their sense of self, their confidence, uh, that then serves them later on when not everybody is looking out for them every minute of the day. Um, I wonder what your experience has been in seeing that, or even from a lower school grade to middle school grade, those transitions where paying this kind of close attention and building these relationships with kids actually strengthens them and empowers them for a future when maybe those structures won't be there. Yeah. Well, I would say from a middle school perspective um, that it actually teaches kids how to be effective learners. Like that's what the teacher's actually doing. We're saying to them, we're saying to the students, like as you're learning new material, you should be constantly asking yourself, what do you know and what do you not know? And then saying to yourself, based on that information, what am I going to do next? And that's, so that's really just the teacher modeling that for the student. That's all they're doing. And so we find that by the time you know, we have eighth graders, our eighth graders are doing that themselves most of the time. And the feedback we get from high schools is that our students are really powerful self-advocates because they just know what this looks like. They know how to be a learner. And so they just take it on themselves. And when a teacher's not doing it for them, it's okay. They know how to do it. So they'll do it themselves. And I, I think also um, in the middle school, we have a practice of building in reflection as part of our assessments, and I think that really helps to contribute um, to independent learners. Um, they are going to high school knowing 
how to look back on their on their own learning process and um, how to assess how they prepared for assessments um, or how uh, you know are, how are they doing with their study skills or their study habits or their study strategies um, that type of thing do, do they know themselves as learners I think that the reflection process that we have here you know speaking only for myself after every test or every unit test you know they have to go and look at their test and actually answer some really good, really um, deep self-assessment questions. Um, some of them uh, really, I think, look very hard at that and make changes, which is, again, great for them as, as learners. I'm reminded of our, uh, at the upper grades where we do uh, student-led conferences, where students lead their own parent-teacher conference and have to go through that process of reflecting on their learning and how powerful that is for them as learners. And I also think that sometimes this stuff can sound soft, but it's actually very rigorous because we're not letting kids off the hook. They can't hide in any way. So while we may know that something happening at home may be affecting the way they're learning right now, we also know that they could do better than they're doing or that when they've underperformed, that we hold them to a higher standard because we have that insight into them. Yeah, and I think in the lower school, we really are preparing our students for those steps in the middle school, that independence of being their own um, in a sense, educator, um, pushing themselves. And while we don't do student-led conferences in the lower school, we are having them think and reflect in that similar way. At the beginning of the year, we start with our hopes and dreams, where they are thinking both academically and social-emotionally on where do they want to grow for over that entire, entire school year. Um, and something that... Um, Liz Hollins and I in the third grade do with our kids is mid-year our parent-teacher conferences we start off with a reflection of the students and them writing a letter to their parents kind of saying this is where I've grown and this is where I've really glowed we talk about grows and glows and they write their le a letter to their parents and it's their starting off point building up to that student-led conference um, also, kind of going back to what Ryan was saying about us modeling as teachers, um, this approach, what's really wonderful is that when we are working with teacher, when we are working with students um, independently or in small groups, the approach that we use from the workshop model is we give them that compliment to start. We say, oh, I noticed that you're doing this strategy. And then we give them a tip. This is where you can grow. Um, and one thing that I love to do when I'm having these conversations, and it's very explicit to them, is I love to show them where on their own checklist for writing or for reading that is. So that the next time, they don't need me to show them the next step for them. They can then pull out that checklist and find it and give them that own their own tip. Um, and I've done that with kids and then they've come to me being like, I saw that I needed to do this and that's what I was able to do. I looked at, I looked something up or I worked with my partner and they showed me how to do that. So they're learning not just to be their own educator and find those ways to learn, but they're also going to each other um, and learning from one another, their partners in that same way. Well, it's interesting in, in, in really wrapping around the kids and understanding them well as learners, we're helping them become independent learners. Mm -hmm. All of your examples have really pointed to that. And I think that to bring us back, the idea of the curricular choices that we make, whether it's math and focus or teachers' college reading and writing workshop or an inquiry-based social studies framework or the 21st century science standards, these all are open-ended approaches that allow kids to find lots of pathways through their learning and, and create the space where all of these kinds of 
teacher interactions and observations and, and flexibility and redirection can occur and, uh, it, while we're still holding a high academic standard. So I think we're about out of time. <clears throat> so I want to thank Sarah Culberson, third grade teacher. Thank you, Sarah. Thank and you. Amy Newhouse, middle thank school you. social studies teacher, for joining us today. And thank you to our division heads, Jen Street and Ryan Woods. In our next episode, we'll discuss how personalization influences how we engage students in that vital area of education, social-emotional learning. We've heard a little bit about that today, and we're going to go a little bit deeper into, into that dimension of our program. So be on the lookout for this episode on iTunes, and if you haven't already done so, check out our previous podcast series on grit and perseverance, and take a moment to rate our podcast and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for how we can make this podcast as valuable as possible. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.